0: Hey everybody, before we get started, this is Andrew, and the University of Iowa, where I work, lovely place to work, is looking to hire another cornea surgeon, another cornea specialist. So if you are looking for a job, if you've ever thought what would it be like to work in an academic environment at one of the great places to do so in ophthalmology, send me an email at andrew-pow, P-O-U-W, at uiowa.edu. Thanks very much, and we'll go on with the episode now.
1: Hello! Welcome to Eyes for Ears, your Ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young.
0: And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not for diagnosing anything on anybody's eye.
1: Each week, we take a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew?
0: This week, we are going to talk about marginal degenerations or melts of the cornea specifically the peripheral cornea so this is the one where we're going to differentiate between a lot of different entities that all have similar initial kind of you could categorize them similarly in that they affect the peripheral cornea but there's big really all at a range of how severely they affect it and how terrible or benign the prognosis can be
1: and we'll go in order from kind of the least bad of them to the most bad of them
0: so uh, Ben, what are these five different entities we're going to talk about just to give folks the lay of the land?
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about CNL furrow degeneration, terion's marginal degeneration, then Fuchs superficial marginal keratitis, and then Morin's ulcer, and then peripheral ulcerative keratitis, we abbreviate it as PUK. So a lot of these are pretty rare to be honest. I mean, some of them are more common, but you know they're like all oh, super critical to not miss on your exams so. If you haven't seen these yet, I hope this episode is of value to you.
0: We'll start in the order, like Ben said, of the, one that's the ones first that aren't so bad for folks with this. And the probably the most benign of all of these is senile furrow degeneration. Then a lot of these, especially the more severe ones, you might not have seen or you might see very rarely, but you've probably seen senile furrow degeneration it happens mostly to older folks who have a lot of Arcus, and then just next to the Arcus, where there's a little bit of clear area, you might notice some thinning in that clear area. The one thing to worry about here is that eventually the tr- the thinning can get bad enough that it might actually be worth kind of considering preoperatively before cataract surgery, because if it's right where your main wound was going to be, that could give you a bad day in the OR. Ben, are these senile furrow degenerations painful for people?
1: Nope. That's why you probably will have missed them.
0: Yeah, I mean, nobody's going to come complaining to you that they have senile furrow degeneration because they don't feel it.
1: I could imagine someone coming in the office saying, Doc, I've got a furrow. We need help right now. It's horrible.
0: So what's this is going to distinguish a lot of these painful versus painless Ben? What's the thing, whether it's intact or not there, that makes the difference?
1: Uh, the epithelium, yeah. When you put fluorescein on these eyes, and it, it, it might pool because there's a little bit of a valley there, but it won't stain. And again, it's like pretty common if you're like actually looking for it.
0: Yeah. And that, that's a good thing that any cornea doctor will be sure to teach you. If you're like a new resident looking at corneal epithelial uptake, like epithelial uptake of uh, fluorescein, the big distinction between is this really, you know, flore- fluorescein attaching to the basement membrane or is it just pooling because it's a little bit of a
1: valley? Yeah. Oh. Okay, that's all there is. In this case,
0: about. yeah, it's not not much else is going on. There's no inflammation, no neovascularization. It's not actually going to perforate unless you knife through it in cataract surgery. So you can basically leave it alone.
1: Yeah, and again, like oftentimes you won't even note it on your exam, you know, like when you're t- or writing out your exam. Um, that's how, like, kind of benign it is.
0: Let's move on to the one that may be a little bit more serious. Terrian's Marginal Degeneration. Ben, you want to take us through some of the starters of that?
1: So, Tarians marginal degeneration uh, tends to happen in younger patients, and the the big thing about this is it's actually like pretty clinically significant thinning. You know, and like know, furrow where you have to really pay attention to to find it. This, ha- you know, should be relatively obvious at some point over the d- disease course. There's no gender predilection. No one knows why it happens. You know, it's not like an infectious cause or anything like that. It's just a gradual degeneration. Usually uh, starts in patients' 30s or 40s with slow progressive thinning of the peripheral cornea. It's non-inflammatory, and the epithelium is intact in these patients, which, Andrew, does that mean it's going to be painful or painless? It'll be painless. Yeah. So, you know, these two, or I guess the first two that we're going to talk about, um, these kind of least bad ones are epi's intact and... They, you know, which means that these are kind of more benign uh, conditions in the last two that we're going to talk about. It's usually bilateral for Terrians, and it usually starts superior nasally, but then it will progress from there and spread kind of circumferentially, like all the way around. Patients probably won't notice themselves until they get astigmatism with this, just like in senile furrow, like anything that, you know, affects your peripheral cornea can give you astigmatism. So this can give someone astigmatism. And if someone has getting progressive astigmatism, that might be a reason to kind of look more carefully at their cornea to try to figure out why that might be happening. Something that can happen because they're getting these thinned areas is they can get a panis that grows on top of the thinned area. Probably as a response to that. Andrew, can you t- describe what a panis is or what it looks like? Yeah, We're not talking totally about just, like those uh, fat flaps from like general surgery, you know. But, like, <laughs> yeah,
0: right, right. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's so many terms that ophthalmology. I don't know which ones came first, like the fundus or whatever. Yeah, but uh, in Probably ophthalmology not us. terms, <laughs> usually micropanis is how we'll try to differentiate it. All mm-hmm. it is is like an advancing area of neovascularization, new blood vessels kind of growing on top of the cornea and kind of making it past the limbus, which is usually sort of. I'm going to misappropriate this word, palisading against that sort of invasion and encroachment. Mm -hmm. Uh, The actual limbal stem cells themselves are usually described in those palisades. But I like thinking of that word as a fence, too. The, The other meaning of the word palisade, like keeping stuff from getting past it. Uh, well, that is not respected in this case. The PANIS is almost like the the vascular conjunctiva migrating into areas of the peripheral cornea where it should not be.
1: Yeah, and this is by far not the only condition where you get a PANIS. You know, probably the most common reason you'd see a PANIS is something like uh, chronic contact lens wear, especially if the contact lens doesn't fit well, but we won't do like a whole PANIS episode. But, you know, I don't want people... Especially for an early resident to hear this and think, oh, panis, this must be terrians. You know, a lot of things can, can anything that kind of chronically injures the peripheral cornea could, in theory, cause a panis. And, you know, something interesting to remember, because these are vascular structures, is that you might see a line of lipid deposits along the leading edge of that panis. You know, almost like lipid exudate in, like, diabetic retinopathy. not have to make the everything about retina. So you know, and that might be the more striking thing. So if you see like a line of deposits near the um, edge of the cornea that comes from some vessels, then then kind of look to see if there's a pannus there, and then after that, look to see how thick or thin the cornea might be in that area. It, um, if you see this leading edge of lipid deposits, itarians patients usually don't get thin enough to rupture, but it makes them. It could make it easier for them to rupture even with minor trauma. So that's one th- reason to you know kind of. To follow these, not to say, like, oh, you have terians. The guys on that podcast said it was, you know, relatively benign. You can go away forever. <laughs> in theory, if they get thin enough and their decimase ruptures, they can have acute high drops, which is where you get acute swelling and hydration of the cornea from a rupture, you know, the endothelium and decimase membrane. So, I mean, that's not common. But if you see someone who has what looks like kind of a peripheral high drops episode, you can think like, hey, maybe they have terians. Definitely look at the other eye to compare because it's usually bilateral. And the last thing that I'll mention here is on their topography, there's usually if if you're going to do a topo to try to help diagnose what's going on, there usually is a flattening of the thinned area of the cornea and steepening about ninety degrees away from the midpoint of that thinned area. So that will give you, you know this might be how they test you against the rule. Or even oblique astigmatism, if, you know, it's um, mainly superior nasal, it might be a little bit oblique, not strictly against the rule astigmatism, which may not, you know, you I had to think about the math too much, and it gives me too much of a headache, so I just kind of try to remember that people, Terrians, even though they're younger, like normally you get against the rule astigmatism when you're older, that's kind of the classic thing from, if you remember from an earlier episode we did, the uh, eyelids are probably kind of less tight against the globe and can lead to this against rule astigmatism, but you know, can do that too, and maybe in a younger patient. So another thing to look for. So, you know, I just said a lot, but the mnemonic that's nice to try to remember all these different features of Tarians is the five Ts of Tarians' martial degeneration. So those five Ts are, this usually starts in their 30s. That's the first T, 30s. It's 30s or 40s, but, you know, you can remember one of them. Um, number two, they have a transversing panis that we talked about. So, Definitely look for that, and that can have lipid exudate on the edge of it. Um, And number three, it starts at the top. So IE starts superiorly, so it starts at the top. Number four, it's thinning of the cornea. So terryans is a thinning process. It's not like an inflammatory process. It's just a thinning degeneration. And number five, which is treatment, which I haven't gone to yet, is you sometimes have to consider a transplant to help treat these when they get that darn thin. So one would consider surgery if it appears that perforation is imminent from a, you know, from from this this thinning, or if their stigmatism is like really vision limiting. And this is one of the you know probably not so common reasons to to do this kind of transplant. It's a usually you would do like a tectonic or crescent shaped lamellar transplant. You could do a full thickness transplant depending on how much of the cornea is involved too, but it's definitely um, not a simple undertaking for the patient or the surgeon. But know that a transplant is, if they need it, is a treatment to, to use terians. So we again, one more time, it's thinning of the cornea, it starts in the top, starts in the 30s, there's a transversing panis, and treatment to consider is transplantation. What's the next degeneration, Andrew?
0: The next one is, we'll spend like 10 seconds on, Fuchs' superficial marginal keratitis. It's honestly not one of the big players, and it's really similar to Tarians, everything we just talked about. But like Ben told you, Tarians is usually in 30 to 40-year-olds, and it's non-inflammatory. Those two things are what distinguishes it from Fuchs Superficial Marginal. Because the big things are that (laughs) Fuchs Superficial Marginal keratitis usually happens in younger folks to children or young adults... And it is inflammatory. Aside from that, it is just much more rare than Tarians. Like, uh, you barely see it in the book, so you barely are probably going to see it in real life.
1: Yeah, it's rare in textbooks, which tells you something. So. Yeah.
0: And it's thought to be kind of on the same spectrum as Tarians anyway. Otherwise, you just think of exactly the same stuff. So, to make sure that my turn is not just like, I just. You know, make Ben do all the talking today. I guess I'll do the next one too, uh, which yep. would be Moorin ulcers, which, uh, you know, I think there's some problematic language in a lot of medical diagnostics. The Moorin ulcer, you know, it's kind of describing what an older term for a geographic area in the Northwestern Africa, like uh, the Iberian Peninsula, the Moors. Uh, I, I'm not sure when. That might or might not become the less preferred nomenclature. Who knows? But uh, apologies to the future uh, cancelers out there for unearthing this episode. At any rate, it's still called a and Ulcer for now, and it probably will be for a while longer. So we'll go on with it. And I actually do think that helps mem- like, helps you remember some of the other interesting aspects of it. But okay, coming back to what it is, Obviously, another peripheral corneal thinning situation. But so far, what we've talked about have all been painless thinnings. And the big distinction here is now we just got into those uh, two entities where this thinning is extremely painful. And like you're probably wondering, that does have to do with an affected epithelium, an affected corneal epithelium where that's being uh, eroded. The, the what would cause all of this the Morin ulcer nobody really knows actually, and the b c s e goes on for a while about like a bunch of autoimmune abnormalities that I don't think you really have to know. I could summarize all of that just for you saying that a lot of cellular samples of Morin ulcer specimens seem to have m h c class two antigens on them, and I think uh that just saved you reading like two or three paragraphs. But the stuff that is high yield to know is that this can be precipitated by trauma. But also, here's the weird one, parasites, flukes, can precipitate this. Okay, so what is it exactly, precipitated by worms or not? It's a chronic, very painful, progressive ulceration of the peripheral cornea that starts at the periphery, Spreads circumferentially, but then does kind of go. What I'll use the word for is centripetally. It does go inwards towards the center of the cordia in its final stages, and it's distinguished on physical exam by this leading edge of undermined, deepithelialized tissue. This undermined thing you might even sort of see like a shelf appearance, um, and then there it does actually ulcerate as well in the other direction. Not just anteriorly towards the corneal center, but also further peripherally towards the sclera side, though that is a much slower kind of a progression. Now, here's the, here's where I think the name helps you remember some stuff, because there's like two types, two general phenotypes of Morris ulcer. The first is one where it's usually unilaterally presenting. And this happens more in folks who are older. It doesn't have a gender predilection. It happens to both sexes equally. And it's more slowly progressive. So you can imagine your first phenotype is unilateral, older folks, equal between men and women, and kind of like less bad because it goes slower. But there is another phenotype that's much more common in African-derived patients, folks of African heritage, and I think this is where the name Mourin ulcer, the geography of the Northwest African and Iberian Peninsula in Spain and France, that area, it's much more common to have this more aggressive phenotype among that patient population, and that is also skewed towards men, and it's not just unilateral. It happens to both their eyes. It is much more rapidly progressive, and it's less responsive to treatment. Everything is just worse in general because not only does it not, uh, not respond to treatment, but the consequences are more severe. Ulceration and perforation are also more frequent. It also seems to be a little more heavily associated with that sort of parasitemia, the fluke kind of pre- uh, etiology. Hepatitis C is also heavily associated with moorin ulcer in general. So kind of to set that in the pantheon of peripheral thinnings that we're talking about, uh, Ben, I'll put this to you as sort of our audience uh, st- audience insert.
1: <laughs> cool.
0: There is a, it's all basically corneal. Even though it does ulcerate towards the sclera side, it's not usually thought of uh, involving the sclera. So this is distinct from PUK, which we'll talk about later, because PUK does have scleral involvement. But is it like Tarians? Remind us, Ben. Did Tarians have sclera involvement? Nope. Cool. <laughs> and uh, the other big thing I made a big deal of, this is painful, right? Is Tarians painful, Ben? Nope. And we'll talk about it soon, but is P.U.K. painful? Yeah. Okay. So your two painful peripheral degenerations, Murin Ulcer and P.U.K. Now let's talk about how we manage this thing. You just douse them with a lot of topical steroids. You support their cornea with bandage contact lenses if you need to. The more exotic stuff you'd probably leave to your cornea specialist colleagues. That includes acetylcysteine, yeah, cyclosporine and be careful. There's like a bunch of different formulations of cyclosporine these days. There's like 0.001%, 0.003%. So definitely consult with your corneal specialist colleagues about that. But uh, as far as procedural interventions go, you might even try a limbal conjunctival recession or excision. Now that I is actually something I feel is very testable. Can you imagine why it would help to recess the conjunctiva?
1: If we're thinking that this is some kind of autoimmune, you know, if we think that the problem is coming from the limbal vessels, then recessing them or retracting them may kind of reduce that exposure of the limbal vessels to the cornea and hopefully reduce the problem. Yeah,
0: you're basically undercutting the highway, you're attacking the logistics supply chain. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The other procedural thing you can do is a lamellar keratoplasty. I mean, that kind of goes without saying for all of these. If your uh, cornea is thinning, you can always replace what's been lost and thinned. Uh, there are some newer treatments. Um, infliximab seems to also help specifically with those cases associated with hepatitis C. I think that is something that the BCSE wants you to know the tragedy of this is that interferon alpha 2a was also kind of cool and really workable but i feel like i've heard rumor lately ben that interferon alpha 2a is no longer being produced
1: i have have no idea
0: yeah like somebody just mentioned it in passing in a cornea morning rounds here and i was like what what the heck and I went and like tried googling it. Apparently, there was one manufacturer that just decided we're not making interferon alpha two A anymore. So, well,
1: that's a problem. Cover. Yeah.
0: Hopefully, that's changed. I mean, that was what I noticed a few months ago. So I don't know.
1: Okay, last one.
0: Last one.
1: Last one. Okay, so if you're gonna remember like one of these five things, this is probably the most important one: peripheral ulcerative keratitis, because this is one of the ways that a a good corneal exam can save someone's life. So so I think the biggest thing is to try to help um distinguish this from Warren's ulcer, because like Andrew said, there's a lot of similarities between the two. The thought is that in PUK the limbus or the sclera should be involved. So unlike Warren's, which is sort of supposed to be a pure corneal thing, you know, this should involve the, the limbus or sclera, though it may not be quite as obvious as involving them early on. But the the a key why well, I say you could save someone's life by um, diagnosing this early enough, this is it's a huge association with autoimmune inflammatory diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, connecti- connective tissue diseases like relapsing polychondritis, Sjogren's, IBD, Wegener's, etc., cetera, or granulomatosis with polyangiitis, uh, you know, and, and so on. So whenever I think of or see someone with PUK, I c- conceptualize it like they're having uh, or like they could be having systemic catastrophic vasculitis, and the PUK could be the presenting sign of that. And, you know, who knows, it could be their kidneys next, you know, or or something else could be, could go next. So uh, this is not something that you, you know, kind of just sit on and hopefully it gets better on its own. You have to do a, a heck of an investigation into, you know, what might be the cause of the PUK and then trying to shut down a potential systemic vasculitis early on, you know, it it doesn't only have to be from an um, autoimmune condition. It could be an infectious problem as well. Severe gonococcal conjunctivitis can eventually end up giving someone a corneal ulcer, you know, by, by progressing from the you know conjunctiva into the cornea uh, into the cornea, giving this kind of peripheral ulcerative keratitis. So that's something to consider too. Asking about time course that they're presenting to you kind of later in the. The disease process. Okay how will they present to you like they could just present with this acute episode with you know a painful peripheral peripheral uh, corneal ulcer is one way they can present. This thing can wax and wane with flare- ups. It's not like you know I don't mean to be dramatic and tell you like oh this will happen once and then they'll die a week later if you don't diagnose it well but you know it could be waxing and waning episodes with flare-ups corresponding to the flares of their uh, underlying autoimmune disease. It can be both bilateral and unilateral, so don't just think, oh, well, that podcast guy said that this is a systemic problem, so if I'm seeing it only in one eye, then it can't be, you know, the autoimmune form of a peripheral ulcerative keratitis. It it can be unilateral as well. You know, one thing that's interesting is how the limbus can look in these patients. So because it's this, like, kind of occlusive vasculitis, you can get a lot of whitening, actually of the the limbus, the conjunctive of the sclera.
0: And here I want to actually direct everybody. If they uh, search on Google for necrotizing scleritis and they look up the Moran Core website page, it actually shows this progressive necrotizing scleritis uh, case where it starts early and then goes on to show you that terrible end-stage thing where it's like, yeah, the sclera is barely there but that scleral whitening, conjunctival whitening, limbal whitening, those were all there in the early precursor stages. And, uh, you know, I got tipped off to this one in morning rounds when uh one of our residents showed an early incipient case of PUK. And I was like, wow, I don't know that I would have uh, known what that was. And I'm glad my cornea colleagues recognize it.
1: So yeah,
0: just watch out. You might see an early case of this that that doesn't look like what you've classically learned in uh, the worst case scenario pictures.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. Okay, how, how do you what do you do to manage these? Well, it's you know it's similar to what we've discussed before. Support that cornea, lubricate the heck out of it. Um, you can use a um, a bandage contact lens. You know, you can use things to help inhibit collagenase. So things that we've that we've talked about previously for corneal ulcers, things like sodium citrates, tetracyclines. thought to do that now it's a little less obvious the use of topical steroids here you know the the nice thing about topical steroids obviously is it it can one hopefully reduce local this local autoimmune um, issue and slow down that collagenous induced melts but then it will slow down epithelial healing so it's this kind of balance of how to use your, your topical steroids to try to help in these situations Just like Andrew mentioned before, you can recess the limbal conjunctiva surgically, bring the limbal conjunctiva back away from the cornea so that this occlusive vasculitis is not kind of bleeding into the cornea. Well, not bleeding, but, you you know... It's not feeding it. it, Yeah, yeah, feeding into the cornea. Inflammatory mediators. Exactly, with all that cytotoxicity and everything. So that's something that you can definitely, you know, could show up in the test, like when you do a limbal conjunctival recession. Because of our emphasis on the autoimmune issue here, they often will require you know, um, the big guns in terms of autoimmune suppression, like oral steroids, you know, do this in conjunction with your rheumatologist, but if they're found to have systemic or, you know, autoimmune problem, you can even use things like cyclophosphamide, And apparently infliximab can also be helpful. So, Andrew, you know, I know I said a lot. How do you distinguish this from Morin's and Terrian's again?
0: Uh, what does it have in common with Morin's, right? P-U-K? Yeah. The two things I'd say would be that both Morin's and P.U.K. are painful because the corneal epithelium is gone. And both P.U.K. and Morin's will be helped by recessing the adjacent conjunctiva. And both those things are also unlike Terrian's. And what P.U.K. is distinguished uniquely by that none of the other entities have is scleral involvement.
1: Right. Which Ben said earlier. And, you know, Morin's, I think some corneal specialists I've worked with have really thought about morons as kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. Like if you see someone with painful, painful peripheral ulcer, you know, unlike the central, more central ulcers, you might see like a bacterial keratitis or something. But if so you see someone with a peripheral corneal ulcer, then start by working as if it's PUK. If you'd like to support the podcast, say a rating review on iTunes, where we found us, is really helpful.